You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lisa Schneer. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, folks. Welcome to the show. Today, we are talking about marketing, innovation, and, and most importantly, revenue optimization. How marketing can lead the way to deliver measurable business results. But in talking to Mark a little bit ahead of time, I got to tell you, I hope we have the time to really dive a little deeper into revenue optimization more holistically so that we can really also include how sales and customer success all play a valuable role in doing so. That'd be great. And so to introduce Mark more fully, we've got Mark Stoos with us today, who is the CEO of Proof Analytics. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to talk through this with us today. I'm happy to be here. And guys, I just want you to know that Lisa was born ready. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they know. If you're a listener, Uh, you know. (laughs) So actually, before we jump into the topic of the day, we do like to ask a question at the top of every show to help the audience get to know you a little better. So we're just curious, what is something that you are passionate about that people who only know you through business might be surprised to learn? So in my avocationally, I'm actually a a pretty advanced scholar of 15th century medieval history, particularly in France, right? Yeah, I can read Latin, for example, stuff like that. And so I also, there's something called the historical European martial arts. So everyone's very familiar with Asian martial arts. There's also European martial arts that are historically rooted in treatises that were written at the time, highly detailed, highly illustrated, basically how-to manuals on sword fighting and all kinds of stuff. And so I am part of a group that explores some of that. And so I specialize in European longsword and in the Polish saber. So this is not reenactment. So we don't dress up and this is not Renaissance fair stuff. We wear black fencing outfits, but we are actually really seriously exploring that kind of stuff. So this is stuff that if you only know me in the context of proof, you would never guess in a million years. (laughs) And that's, do you analyze movie scenes where they do fencing and you know when they've actually done something that's not real or not period accurate? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you kind of go through a progression where you initially know so much that it sort of ruins movies. Because you are actually approaching movies wrongly. You're wanting them to be a literal historical dramatization. And the problem is, is that that's not what a movie is. A movie is entertainment. So like, for example, in The Last Duel uh, with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and all those guys, right? They're wearing a helmet that only has half a face covering. And you're like... I mean, if you know what, if you have my level of understanding and other people's understanding, you're like, that is just bullshit. That never happened (laughs) at all. But the reason why they do it is they're they're paying these guys, they're paying Matt Damon so much money. And there is a visceral, like the last thing that the director and the producer of the movie want to do is cover his face. And so that's why you see stuff like that. And that's why you see actually the sword fights in Errol Flynn's 
cinematic career, far more realistic than anything that you see today. The, the whole deal wearing the sword on your back and pulling it out like this is, over the top of your shoulder is just not the way it works. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> it looks great. It looks awesome, but it's not real. Yeah. Oh, oh my. Well, I guess that's why when you see those like uh, scuba diving movies, they got this full mask so you could see their faces, right? It's not just goggles and a little respirator on it. No, that's actually really, really true. It also looks cooler to have the full face mask. But yes, it totally allows you to see the character. So there's just a lot of that kind of stuff that you just kind of have to say, okay, I, I get it. And so actually, when they do get it really right, you appreciate it more. And I will, I'll finish by just saying this real fast, because this is obviously not the topic of the podcast. <laughs> we could change the topic. <laughs> I would say that the last 15 years have been a golden era in Hollywood of historical drama, and not because they get it technically correct all the time. In fact, they most of the time don't. But what they have really excelled at, for the most part, is putting you in a time and place. And so it's as close to time travel as you're ever going to get. Actually, a really great example of this is the movie Midway that came out, what, two years ago or something mm -hmm. like that? Yeah. And they realized that they didn't have any aircraft carriers from that period, but they did have detailed blueprints of every carrier. And so they CGI'd the whole thing, and it is hyper accurate. So like what you are seeing there, even though it's purely digital, is exactly the way it really was. And that is, that's extraordinary. I mean, that is pretty freaking amazing as, as a historian. That is cool, especially, you know, technology today. All right, tell us a little bit about Proof Analytics. How'd you get to this point in your career? Help our audience understand Mark a little bit better in, in your company. School of hard knocks, right? <laughs> I guess it was 15, 16, 17 years ago as a senior marketer, not yet a CMO, I was about to leave the profession because so many business leaders were not taking marketing or me seriously. And it was, I mean, it always takes two to tango, but it was disproportionately our fault. And at that particular moment in my life, being taken seriously was more important to me than how much money I made. And so I was, and we can debate what, how good that impulse is, but that's <laughs> the truth. And so I went on a hunt to find something that would give me an unfair advantage. And I discovered work that had been done in B2C, so I was B2B, started by Procter & Gamble called Marketing Mixed Modeling. It had algorithmically, mathematically, it was superb. It was a killer to scale and to actually operationalize. But it was pretty much, and still is, the only thing that will get you there. And so we did it. And we started doing it at BMC, and we did it at HP, and we did it at Honeywell. Every time we did it, we obviously had learned more, and so we were doing it better. And it was ultimately a huge success, but it was extremely expensive. Seven, eight million dollars a year just in analytics. And so it was the classic automation argument. And so we just decided to put together a company and begin to automate and otherwise operationalize this math that had been around for a long time that people's not only struggle to scale and to use and all this kind of stuff, but to even understand the outputs. If you're a data scientist, were 
totally understandable. But if you were just a normal business person or a marketing person, they were Greek. And so there was this huge kind of whisper layer that drove a tremendous amount of the cost. It was also really static. It was the models were being recalculated every six months, maybe every year. And then it would take another three to four or five months after that to generate this whisper interpretation kind of piece, usually a PowerPoint deck. And so by the time the customer, in this case, me, I was the CMO, got it, it was even the forecasts were all in the past. It was kind of semi-pointless. So the way we did it at Honeywell to overcome this, which is essentially brute force version of automation, was we just overhired people, right, to get the throughput that we needed. But it was it drove huge costs, and so that's the background on Proof. So today, Proof is an automated marketing mix modeling platform that's actually integrated into, I think, what is generally regarded as the hottest MRM tool, marketing resource management tool in the marketplace today. It's the only one on Salesforce, right? So it's now a full lifecycle thing. The main reason why I did it, guys, I mean, seriously, is I think that marketing is the best job in any company. And there's a lot of people who would disagree with that, but that's my own opinion. But it totally sucks, okay? Because nobody believes in the value of it. This is one of the reasons why right now you're seeing huge budget cuts taking place in marketing. It's because the business leaders don't know what they've been getting, really. And so they have no idea what they will be losing in the future by making these cuts. That's it, in a nutshell. So if we can help prevent that, if we can help prove the value of marketing and change the game, we have, we've made a great contribution. Okay, so let's, before we dive deeper into the company and how it differentiates, can we double down on your statement a little bit there? And what I'm most curious about is, what are your views on how effective most companies, and I guess by most companies, I'm not thinking about the multi-billion dollar Honeywells of the world. I'm thinking about, you know, we deal a lot with 50, 100 million plus organizations. How good are their marketing teams at really optimizing revenue growth and even proving it? Typically not, right? And the main reason for this is that they are so focused on spending every last dime they have on the latest bright, shiny object in terms of a campaign that they're not doing anything to really truly understand the value. And so let me be very clear. There's a lot of people who have tech stacks, marketing tech stacks, that are generating a lot of data. And data is really valuable, but data is always, 100% always about the past. It is never about the future. And it will never tell you why something happened, ever. Data is like the score on an NBA game. You can see who won and who lost. But if you know nothing else, it won't tell you anything about why the game ended up that way. And so if you are visualizing data, by the way, I love Tableau. This is not a knock on Tableau, okay? But if you're visualizing data and you think that that is proof of impact, I got a newsflash for you. Data Science 101 totally put a torpedo straight into that idea. All right. So then taking that proactive data analysis or data visualization approach rather than the reactive one, 
Is that where proof differentiates best? Yeah, I mean, it's analytic. The difference between data and analytics is that analytics is all about the relationships that exist or don't exist between different things, different things you're measuring. So another kind of analogy here that a lot of people make, and like every analogy, it'll break somewhere, but it's pretty decent. Data is like West Texas crude, okay? It's really important that you have good oil to start with, but you're not going to be able to burn West Texas crude in your car. You put West Texas crude into your Porsche or your Ford, you've just ruined the engine. (laughs) You've got to have a refinery that distills that crude into a usable fuel. That is analytics with data. Analytics is the distillation process. So, guys, this is not about opinion. I mean, this is just the way it is. It's like the law of gravity. Okay. So then with the, I guess, differentiators that Proof brings to the market, can you share your thoughts on how effective that is? Like, can you tell us about a company that's really doing it right? You've mentioned a few of your big customers and what kinds of impacts are they seeing? Well, I mean, so Johnson Controls, a competitor to Honeywell, uh, particularly in the in the building automation and control space uh, is what they're really noted for. So they've been a customer since 2018. So why that's relevant is that they have been using proof across those four years, so 2018 to present, which are some of the more most volatile and change-ridden years that we've seen in a long time. If you, to the point where, if you took your data or even your analytics from 2020 to plan 2021, you would have been in a hole. Things changed that much. So the ability to forecast and then see what the market is really doing relative to that forecast and either adjust your forecast or adjust what you're doing in reaction to the marketplace is the whole deal. I mean, that is the whole deal. It's like running a GPS on your phone. It's about having to reroute because there's an accident ahead of you on what was a perfectly good route to your destination and suddenly isn't anymore. That's exactly what this is. The ability to do this in a very low latency, meaning very rapid recalculation, is what makes the whole thing viable, makes the whole thing valuable. If it's just, again, just like a GPS, if you were, actually all of us have experienced this probably, if you have, if you're walking along in like Manhattan, where there's a lot of buildings that are interrupting the sight line to the satellites, and all of a sudden your dot on your phone, on the map, (laughs) stops moving, right? And you're like, crap, what do I do? And then all of a sudden it leaps ahead and you realize that you missed your turn. That's the problem right there. And so by automating it, in this case, going back to the analytics, you obviate that problem. You're always there because there is no barrier. There's no building that's stopping the signal. So this is one of the reasons why these companies use it. In the case of Johnson Controls, in they started seeing forecasts in late 2019 that a lot of the stuff in their marketing portfolio that had been really high performers for a long time, field marketing events is one, was going to start falling off a cliff. And I'd like to remind everybody, this is before everybody knew about COVID. And yet the signals were already being sent. 
by February, when everybody knew about COVID, but no one knew the extent of the damage that it was going to do, the forecasts were catastrophic. And so what it allowed Johnson Controls to do was to get out of a lot of these contracts early. And they saved about $6 million in that year alone. And when, I don't know, I guess it was like August of that same year, when finance came to marketing at Johnson Controls and proposed a 50% budget cut, they were able to show the analytics and forecast the damage in the future from a 50% cut. And they ended up with a 15% cut. And finance said, you know what? It's too, the cut is too expensive. What we're going to lose in the future is we can't afford to lose it. So we're going to go find the money, the rest of the money somewhere else. That's exactly what we're talking about. That is huge right there. Love that. You know, I think a lot of organizations kind of struggle with this concept. In fact, one of the comments that we talked about before the podcast was comprehending the underlying cause and effect that behind this business data we're looking at. Now, Mark, I got to be honest with you, I got, you know, in our businesses, we have some clients that can't even figure out why customers actually even buy them. They're so, some of these smaller companies are just so stuck in, hey, we built a better widget and and we showed it and people bought it. And now we're, we're trying to scale and we have no clue or even why they bought it to begin with or what kind of impact it's had. How do you effectively help organizations like that? So that every data scientist that I know will echo this. The number one issue here is always culture. If you kind of look at it from a people process technology point of view, it's always people. People are always long pole or the short pole, as the case may be. And just to show you how vulnerable we all are to ego, which is a huge part of this cultural problem. Mm -hmm. So here I am with everything that I know and everything that I believe about this. And in year three, we had absolutely built the better mousetrap and people were buying it and it was cool. And my ego very quietly started to take over in terms of, and all of a sudden my, I started narrowing my point of view. It started really, and I had to have several people on my team basically say WTF. And so they were absolutely right. And I'd tell the story because if it can happen to me in this particular context, given what we're talking about, it can happen to anybody. And so you have to be able to get past, I am so smart. Look at how smart I am. You, you, we were all, before the podcast started, we were talking about the fact that that's the definition of the founder title is look how smart <laughs> I am. I just think that that is the biggest, hugest block to forward momentum and forward progress that you can think of. One of the, to the point where it's part of our ICP, we ask a number of questions in the first meeting that are designed to DQ prospects based upon this issue alone. If you're presented with analytics that counter what you believe, what are you gonna do? A proxy question for this is, what do you think about the mathematics underlying climate change study or pandemic study or any other in scientific endeavor? And if they basically say, if they politicize the question, mm. then they're not a good client. Right. I like that. That's part of discovery that I think a lot of people only do when they're recruiting. I have a few clients that on their job postings, they say we've got a no jerks policy. <laughs> but it's not something when you think of like 
working with a partner, client, vendor, whatever, that's some really interesting discovery questions. I like that. Yeah. I mean, we would rather not have the customer than churn the customer later. Yeah, exactly. And that is, and you could totally apply that to hiring as well, right? Exactly. We always feel like we're behind the eight ball in terms of staffing. So we, there's a definite temptation to be expedient in the hiring of people, but we just, we've learned the hard way. You just don't do it. You just do not do it. You will pay a heavy price later. So what do you tell people in our audience that don't have Honeywell or Johnson Controls budgets? How do they leverage your technology in a more cost-effective manner? Do you have an offering that helps? Yeah, it's actually one of the main reasons why we have the pricing model and the terms that we have. $49 a seat per month on a monthly contract. I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that at all. I would say that if you're deep in the small business category, you might only need one seat. And the the risks that you're seeking to bear against are different than they would be in a larger company. But And we don't have a lot of small business customers. We're pretty much in the enterprise in the mid-range. But there's absolutely no reason why a small business that's spending five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000 a year on marketing couldn't get value off of 600 bucks a year in, in for one seat. Is there a sign, when you say like mid-sized companies, what does that mean to you? I would say that in general terms, I, I don't define it in terms of employee count. I define it in terms of revenue. So I think that the mid-range is, is kind of in that 200 million to a billion kind of area. I mean, people have different views on this and I don't think it's a religious argument at all. But the one thing that everybody knows is what's an enterprise. The enterprise class is pretty freaking obvious. Yeah. We also deal with a lot of companies, especially our SaaS customers, where me and Lisa feel the same way. It's like, hey, it's not just marketing leading revenue optimization. It's marketing, it's sales, it's customer success. So I'd love to circle back on what your view is on that. Because I think totally agree. You know, there's all different versions of it. On the surface, everyone will say yes. But then the way they structure it behind the scenes is all different flavors. And some of it depends on their business, but love to get your perspective. Well, I think that the core issue is that you have things that create value on a linear function and those that create value on a nonlinear function. And the nonlinear is designed to be a force multiplier on those things that are linear. Sales is a classic example of a linear value creation. So this is why a sales leader presented with a higher revenue target is going to immediately say, well, I know how much revenue per sales guy I can produce. And so I need 20 more sales guys. That's a linear function. It's And the only way that you get scale is by adding cost. Marketing 120 years ago, when it was first kind of created or thought of, was created to be a nonlinear multiplier of sales productivity. So you don't have to necessarily increase marketing spend to get more leverage. It is leverage, right? And so as we were talking about before we started the podcast, marketing's mission is to help sales sell more product to more customers faster and more profitably than sales could do by itself. It's also, for that matter, a multiplier of a lot of other areas of business. Recruiting and retention is a great example of that. There are many others. 
IT, enterprise IT is another non-linear multiplier of business performance. There's not very many of non-linears. They're mostly linear. You want more productivity, you add more costs, you add more people, you add more whatever. So I would say that the other part to this that, that people don't really think about is that there is an arc in that describes the customer relationship and what is taking the lead, what functions are taking the lead in the relationship in terms of creating value in that relationship change over time. They're not static at all. So, for example, one of the things that you see a lot right now in survey data of CEOs is the one area that they are not cutting at all, and in some cases they're increasing, is customer success. Why? Because, now I think it's a little late, okay, to be doing this, but that aside, okay, they are trying to mitigate churn because churn not only hammers their top line, it hammers their bottom line, it hammers their cash flow in a time of great challenge to them, right? Raising money is suddenly not as easy as it once was. So the issue today in their mind is I've got to keep more of what I already have, which is a very, it's important. That's real. I mean, as a CEO, I will tell you that is absolutely true, but it is not the complete truth. So when you say, like most of them are saying, well, I'm cutting marketing at least in half, that's really stupid. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude to any CEO or CFO that happens to be listening, but it is, it's stupid. Now, I understand why you're making that decision. It's because marketing has not shown you in concrete terms what you've been getting for your money historically. And so you have no idea what you will be losing in the future because you're making this cut. And so you say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what I don't know and I'm going to stack it against what I do know, which is I got to cut costs in this operation. And so I'm going to cut costs. But if you don't know what, those, what you're really doing, you could really be playing with fire. I'm not saying that marketing shouldn't have a cut, but you got to calibrate it. And just saying, well, you know what? I can achieve 50% of my total target by cutting marketing in half. That's not the way to do it. So he mentioned customer success. Love to get your perspective on what do you think that function really is or should be? Because everybody has, whether you're a non-SaaS or a SaaS type business, everybody seems to have a different definition of customer success. Yeah, I'll tell you who doesn't have a different definition of customer success, and that's the customer. (laughs) Mm, Good point. So the key metric for customer success teams is, are the customers successful? Right, Because guess what? A successful customer is almost assuredly going to renew, probably will also expand. So this is pretty straightforward. And this is not support. So support is break fix. Yeah. Okay. Customer success is all about, hey, let me show you how you can be getting more value. Let me show you how you can do this. It's sort of like my kids know more about the capabilities of the iPhone than I do. And they have shown me more cool stuff that is native to the iPhone that Apple never tells you. Now, why Apple doesn't tell you, I have not a clue in the world, okay? But they don't, not really. Not unless you want to buy this huge iPhone for dummies book and read the whole thing. 
But my customer success, my Apple customer success team are my boys. And they have kept me on the platform. I can't wait for the next one to come out in the fall because I understand it's going to be a pretty significant upgrade and I'm eager to buy it. Yes. <laughs> and the people, the folks that Apple should be sending a check to are my two sons. I'm laughing because sometimes they say significant upgrade and it's, hey, we moved the two buttons from this side to this side. Yeah, no, I, they're never going to say it's <laughs> insignificant, right? But I do, everything I read says that this one is pretty substantial. I'll take your word for it. And I'm always upgrading anyway. I'm a sucker for this yeah, stuff. Yeah, me too. My big reason is it just works. Yeah, and, and that's actually a great transition statement back into the conversation. And that is the customer just wants it to work. They want to be personally and organizationally successful, more successful because they bought your product and are using your product than they would have otherwise been. That's it right there. If you can say that, if your customer success team is delivering that, then you absolutely, when they renew, your customer success team should get the commission on that renewal and that expansion, not your sales guys. In fact, focus your sales guys on net new logos and your customer success on renewal. I'm with you. I think this day and age, we're hit with so much more technology than ever. People can accept that it's not going to work perfectly. What they cannot accept is that you're not going to do anything about it. Yeah. And again, this is not about break fix, right? The break fix part has been table stakes for a very long time. What is table stakes today is that you're going to actively help me be successful. I think we often forget that this is actually not amorphous. This is incredibly personal to your customer. There is a person or persons on the other end that you're either going to help be more successful and catapult them into stardom or you're not. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like we could probably talk about this for another 36 to 46 minutes. <laughs> However, we want to make sure that we ask our last couple of questions. And we do ask the same two questions at the end of every show. And curious because, Mark, you are an executive. You get prospected to all the time by people who do not have a referral or warm relationship with you. So what catches your eye? What actually builds credibility with you enough for you to respond to a cold outrage? So I think that the missing piece for a lot of people is that they only control one half of the equation. And a lot of times we've tried to codify the other part as intent. But a lot of times I haven't done anything to demonstrate intent. And yet there is a, a huge pressure or need that I'm feeling that I have felt like maybe no one is really enunciated at all. And then all of a sudden I get somebody who not only is talking about it, but talking about it intelligently. And I'm like, oh, I need to talk to you. But we're talking about a fraction of 1% of the total people who approach me. I mean, most of the stuff that I get on LinkedIn, and that's where I get prospected to the most, is just total crap. Right. Like I would be so ashamed to send this stuff out. I can't even tell you. It would be mortifying to me to be the author of this stuff. It's so bad. And the brand damage to these brands is off the charts. This is what happens when demand gen or lead gen 
is probably a better way of putting it because it's not demand. It's not really demand as lead gen. It runs amok. And where you're just seeking to close more deals at any cost, you're just going to run straight up the middle. And they always think they're making a virtue out of being super direct. But I mean, they're not. It's pretty, most of the time, it's pretty ghastly stuff. And if they're, it's so bad that if the one thing I would ask of LinkedIn is figure out a way with AI to just nuke this stuff before I even see it. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, it's just terrible. Yeah. Uh, to the point, and I actually, my scar tissue on this is substantial because it's one of the main reasons why I rarely go commercial on LinkedIn in any of my posts is that I feel like it damages my ability to help people and to be heard by people. And I realize you can go too far in that direction and all that kind of stuff, but I would much prefer to go too far in that direction than go too far in the other one. Okay. Makes sense. It's We all got the scars of some of the messaging and outreach that we get, and it's outrageous. And then the worst ones are the ones where you kind of feel fooled. Someone's actually trying to be genuine and reach out to you and want to connect. And you're like, ah, okay, you know, I'm willing to help somebody out. And then the very next, the next one is, let me pitch you tomorrow. The connect and pitch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I have a rule, okay, that I will not discuss uh, proof commercially with someone for six months after I connect with them for that very reason. And now if they initiate it, that's different. But I'm not going to, I mean, I don't really do this anyway, as I said, but I would never dream of doing that. I mean, my mother would kick my butt, right? <laughs> Just in basic human relationship kind of truths. I mean, she would be so appalled if she heard that I did that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, it might be because we come from a little different generation than some folks today as well. But I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm, not really not. I'm not saying you are. I'm not saying you are. So let me get myself out of the hole. Our last big questions we call an acceleration insights. So what might be that one piece of advice you'd want to share with our listeners to really help them optimize their revenue goals? So there are three big things that any business cares about. Revenue, that's top line. Profits, that's bottom line. And deal velocity, that's cash flow. If you had to narrow it to one, you would absolutely follow deal velocity. The reason for that, and that's like the bottom of the funnel, that's not the top. The reason for that is that it is a summary metric of all the rest of it. So if you are seeing your deal velocity steadily improve, the likelihood that you are also doing more deals, so that would be the revenue side, is very high. If it is continuing to improve, it's because people really believe. So guess what? That means they're probably going to buy more. And unless your pricing model is totally screwed up, your profitability is also going to go up. So I would just say your number, if you think about, this is particularly true as the real and perceived risk of the buy decision goes up in the minds of customers. So the more trust and confidence they have in you, the signal on that is how fast they complete a deal. Because if you're B2B enterprise or even mid-market B2B and you're selling anything that involves any kind of risk at all, 
you're looking at six to nine months average deal flow. And that's a killer, particularly when you get to the very end of that and you lose, you don't, the deal doesn't make or it slips significantly. It's just a killer. And so the main reason that that is so long is that they are using easily half that time to mitigate the risk of the deal. And the, the risk that they're mitigating is you. It's the vendor. So the more trust and confidence or the more de-risking, to kind of put it a different way, that you can do, the faster you're going to get deals, the more deals you're going to get, and probably the more profitability you're going to have. And so those are the things I would really look at. And particularly going into this economic reality that we apparently are moving into, it's never been more important if you have long sales cycles right now, you're guess what? You're getting ready to get longer ones unless you take some really major steps to mitigate that. Great. That's some pretty good advice. Awesome, Mark. Perfect. If a listener wanted to get in touch with you about any of the topics that we touched on today, what is the best way that you'd like people to get in contact with you? LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn. So that's a pretty straightforward okay. and I always respond. If you contact me, you will get a response and you'll get one promptly. Twitter also, if you want to kind of DM me on Twitter, that's fine. If I would say email is the worst, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you want to learn more about Proof, it's proofanalytics.ai. That's the, the website. So those are the ways I would go about it. Awesome. Well, Mark, can't thank you enough for your time today. It's been so great having you on the show and cover everything from 15th century fencing to all of the customer optimization topics that we covered today. So thank you again for joining us for this episode. Hey, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Please check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers, your dogs, your kids. And if you like what you hear, do us a favor and throw us a five-star review on iTunes. And until next time, I am your co-host, Lisa Schneer, joined by my co-host, Carlos Noche, and we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.